Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. It's not as critical to find 45 minutes or an hour, two hours or a week or a month or a year or 10 years to you know sit down on a cushion and meditate, but really as like short moments many times. So that's how we form any new habits. You know, in any one moment, notice when we're getting caught up in our experience and just and and practice letting go. That's that's a moment that's going to help train our brain. Oh, this is good. Do it again. Whether it's a substance or a behavior, you know, we can get addicted to doing certain things, including checking our phones, whether it's a food or a food-like object, you know, Doritos, or what is it, Lay's, I bet you can't just eat just one, you know, because we've designed it that way. All of these things can get us addicted. That's why I make the bold claim, uh, you know, we're all addicted to something. And the reason I can make that claim is that our brains are set up that way, this is the first time historically that we can actually refine substances and make behaviors very, very addictogenic. That is Dr. Judson Brewer talking about the powerful role that meditation and mindfulness can play in our everyday lives and in our ability to break bad habits. Dr. Judd is an associate professor of psychiatry and the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. And he is an internationally known thought leader in the neuroscience of mindfulness, habits, and addictions. Dr. Judd has brilliantly combined his scientific expertise with his many years of personal meditation practice to tackle some of the most vexing habits and addictions that we all face. It is Dr. Judd's contention that we are all addicted to something. And with the power of mindfulness, we can become aware of these addictions and conquer them with dramatically better results than trying to use our very limited willpower muscle. In this podcast, Dr. Judd takes us on a journey inside the brain, our old brain and our new brain, to shed light on the mechanics of our constant inner dialogue, how habits get set up, and how our prefrontal cortex and willpower are a poor weapon when fighting the war on bad habits, and how mindfulness builds curiosity, which turns out to be one of the best weapons we have for not only breaking bad habits, but also for being our best selves every day. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. 
We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24 7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. I am so delighted to welcome our guest, Dr. Judson Brewer, to the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. Dr. Judd, as he is known, is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, and he is an internationally known thought leader in the neuroscience of mindfulness and habits. Dr. Judd was born in Indianapolis and raised by his hero, his mother Alice, a single mother of four children who went to law school at night. A self-described go-getter, he won a scholarship as a paperboy in Indianapolis, which helped him land at Princeton University, where he earned a degree in chemistry. It was during his senior year at Princeton where the seeds of Dr. Judd's career began when he started having stomach problems that led to a mapping out of the bathrooms along his running routes. Despite eating well, exercising, and doing all the right things, he eventually realized that he had stress-induced irritable bowel syndrome, and this led him down a path of trying to understand the mind-body connection, especially why we get sick when we are stressed. The bathroom map ultimately led him to the combined MD-PhD program at Washington University in St. Louis, and the study of immunology and the impact of stress on our immune systems. When he entered medical school, he was still stressed out, and despite his gut issues improving, he began to struggle with sleep after a difficult breakup with his fiancée and college sweetheart. And then Dr. Judd stumbled upon John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe Living, Using the Wisdom of Your Body and Mind to Face Stress, Pain, and Illness. The book changed the entire trajectory of his life, and in 1998, he went on his first of many meditation retreats. Dr. Judd completed his residency in psychiatry at Yale, where he also did a postdoc in neuroscience and a fellowship in substance abuse, finishing all this in 2009, just 13 years ago. Dr. Judd has taken his personal experience with stress and anxiety, his experience with meditation and mindfulness, and his training in neuroscience and psychiatry and merged them with his interest in addictions. From his stressed out college beginnings, he has, since just 2009, become a thought leader in the field of habit change and in the science of self-mastery. And he has changed the lives of countless people around the world with his common sense, down-to-earth, but science-based integration of mindfulness, neuroscience, and habits. Dr. Judd has written two bestsellers, The Craving Mind and Unwinding Anxiety which was just released last year and which became an instant New York Times bestseller. In addition to his books, he has developed three life-changing apps, Eat Right Now, Craving to Quit, and Unwinding Anxiety, and they all work better than any standard medical therapy. His groundbreaking work has been featured on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper, The Today Show, NPR, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. And in his 2016 TED Talk, a Simple Way to Break a Habit. It was the fourth most viewed TED Talk that year and has been viewed over 10.5 million times. Dr. Judd, it is a real delight and honor to have you on as a guest on the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So, you know, first off, could, could you give us a, I guess, a mini med school lecture on the old brain versus the new brain? <laughs> I'd be happy to. 
So we can think of our, you know, our old brain, and this is more a heuristic than anatomically correct version. So I just, correct. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. It works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So heuristics are helpful. Uh, so I think of the old brain as our survival brain. You know, if we think of our ancient ancestors out on the Savannah, they didn't have refrigerators, so they had to go find food every day. And their brains and our brains still today are set up to kind of remember, kind of learn where food is and, and remember where it is so we can go back and find it again. And in fact, it only takes three elements to, uh, to learn that process, to set up that context-dependent memory. So it takes a trigger, a behavior, and a result or a reward from a neuroscience standpoint. So you can think of, you know, we're foraging on the, on the savannah and our brain doesn't have the memory capacity to be constantly like laying down memories. Oh, that tree, that rock, this, that it waits until it's like something is salient, something that's important mm -hmm. to pay attention to. It's kind of like, a, you know, it's kind of like a memory card in our, in our phone. You know, we only can take so many pictures. And so we're going to, we're going to choose which pictures to take. Our brain does the same thing. So for foraging for food, we find the food, there's the trigger. And that says, Hey, you know, remember, you know, pay attention here. We eat the food and then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So that's where it starts clicking the pictures and says, remember this rock, remember this river or whatever it is so that we can go back and find it again in the future. The same is true for avoiding danger, right? So if we see the cyber tiger, we run away, there's the behavior and then we survive. There's the, there's the reward. Uh, we can also learn, okay, avoid that part of the savannah. So that's basically our old brain at play, trying to help us survive. And we, we can talk more about this later, but basically this is how we set up any type of habit because habits help us survive so we can learn new things every day. You know, so imagine in modern day, if we had to relearn everything from, you know, imagine you, you wake up in the morning, you get out of bed, you have to relearn how to walk, you have to relearn how to put on your clothes, you have to relearn how to make breakfast, how to chew, how to, how to get food in your mouth. You know, so that process not only helps us survive, but also helps us learn very basic things that we can lay down. I think of it as set and forget, you know, you set the, set the habit and you forget about the details. So that's the old brain. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the new brain is more, it helps us survive in a different way. So this involves structures like the prefrontal cortex. And those, that, this part of the brain helps us survive by planning for the future. It's, it's much of our brain is devoted to predicting the future, um, simulating. And you know, it, it, some think of it as like this prediction machine where it takes information from past experiences and it takes the current information, you know, information that we have now, and it projects that into the future to try to simulate what might happen. It's all about reducing uncertainty, you know? So if we can be sure that the saber-toothed tiger is gonna be here, we can, you know, we can simulate that in our brain and say, okay, don't go there. <laughs> so, yeah. so that it helps us survive. Or if we're, um, you know, in when agrarian society evolved, uh, then, you know, people could, lay down memory, simulate when they, you know, when they need to go and harvest the crops and all of that stuff. In modern day, the simulation helps us plan for the future, right? So that part, um, think of it as taking, you know, taking these survival components, but really focusing on simulating the future as compared to what's happening right now. Old brain says, hey, is there danger? If there's danger, I got to get out of here. Is there food? I got to stick around and, and pick the berries. 
the the new brain focuses a lot more on you know planning for the future. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And the uh, I think a key word there in my reading of your work is the the certainty versus uncertainty piece and how critical that is. Do you want to just elaborate on that just a bit? Yes. Well, I think we can all relate to this. Yes. Our our, our brains tend to hate uncertainty. (laughs) (laughs) And I say hate in the sense that it's not really hate. It's our brain saying, hey, there's uncertainty here. Try to minimize that uncertainty because it could, you know, there could be danger here, right? So if we're, you know, uh, think back to our ancient ancestors, they hear a rustling in the bushes and they don't know if that's just their family member out there, you know, doing something in the bushes or if it's a saber tooth tiger coming to eat them. So our brain says, Ooh, I don't know what that sound is. It's unfamiliar. And we get this urge to kind of minimize that uncertainty to either go look or run. You know, if, if there's something like, wow, that sounds dangerous, we run away and we minimize the uncertainty by making sure that we're far away from whatever that sound was, or we minimize the uncertainty by going and exploring to see what that is. So that, that relates in the sense that our brain is, is kind of set up from a survival standpoint to, uh, to really say, Hey, if there's something that's uncertain, I need to go figure out what that is, or I need to do something about that. And we get that urge to do something so that we can minimize that uncertainty. And, and what does that mean relative to the kind of the modern world compared to the old world? Yeah. Well, in the modern world, uh, we can think of, especially when our, our survival brain is meeting, you know, that, that uncertainty piece of our brain is meeting our planning brain. <laughs> so, yes. so therein is the problem. <laughs> therein is the problem. Right. Yeah. So, so we can think of this around the idea of, you know, when we think into the future and we try to plan into the future and there's uncertainty, the more uncertainty there is, the more our brain cannot uh, make accurate predictions into the future. And those inaccurate predictions say, hey, you know, it makes us a little feel a little antsy, a little nervous to try to figure out what that is. The problem is most of us, our our crystal balls don't work so well, right? Right, right, So we can predict some of the future, like, okay, the sun's probably going to rise in the east because it has, you know, forever. Uh, But we can't predict things like, well, think, the, think of the pandemic as a good example here where, you know, it's like there's uncertainty after uncertainty after uncertainty. And even when we try to do our best to bring all of the science in and try to figure out, you know, all the things that we've figured out over time, right. until those things are figured out, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. And then our brains start leaping into the future and trying to predict all the things that could happen. So if you pair uncertainty with fear, you get anxiety. Yeah. So kind of trying to figure out all the worst case scenarios doesn't actually help us survive. And it only makes us anxious. Makes us anxious. Yeah. Which anxiety is a, a would you call it an epidemic? I epidemic? epidemiologists might jump down my throat for this, yeah. but I would, I'll put it this way. It is, it is certainly spiked hugely in, you know, in 2020 and 2021. And then what about the role of continuous information and news and all this stuff and feeding that uncertainty, you know, flame? Yeah. So you would think that our access, our unparalleled access to information in modern day would help reduce uncertainty. 
because you know this is a, oh something's happening let's figure out what it is let's go on a news channel and and get that information you would think that would help the problem here is that many people don't turn to trusted news sources for accurate information they you know whether it's convenience or habit or whatever uh, they go to social media yeah. And social media, there was a study, I think, from 2018 in Science Magazine showing that fake news spreads five times faster than real news, five mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. So people go to social media and they're like, oh, I'm going to let's just see. You know, I heard something happen. Let me go see what happened. Uh, and they're getting fed, you know, the likelihood that they're going to actually get accurate information as compared to somebody's freaking out or some fake news or whatever is actually not that great. So they're being subject to more uncertainty right. <laughs> rather, yeah. rather than accurate information. And so social media doesn't help in that respect. And also uh, fear can spread through what's something called social contagion. So mm -hmm. the more, you know, it's like somebody sneezing on your brain. And, and the wow. problem is somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world. You know, you, right. you don't, you know, social distancing doesn't work so well for, for social right. contagion. Yeah. So here, you know, if, if we're going on social media to try to learn something and all people are doing are freaking out, then we're more likely to catch that freak out and freak out ourselves. Well, I've certainly experienced that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the default mode network mm -hmm. and, and what role that plays in this whole scenario? Yes, this is a really interesting story here. So this network was actually discovered it was around the time I was I was doing my MD PhD program at WashU and in St. Louis. There was a group there led by Mark Rakel, Marcus Rakel, who's a very careful neuroscientist. They they basically invented fMRI and, and PET scanning at at Washington University in St. Louis. So they're doing all these groundbreaking experiments there that I didn't even know about because I was mostly focusing on you know molecular aspects of, mm -hmm. of things, and they had done some work where they. You know, for fMRI studies, you need two conditions. You need a control condition and then you need your active condition because our brain is constantly in flux and you need some, some comparison so you can get a relative change to study. That's, that's how we look at uh, brain activities, relative changes in brain activity. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to figure, they, they picked a, a task that would be easy to do, easy to teach and you know, basically fail safe. So they said, okay, what's the easiest thing to have people do? tell them to lay still and not do anything in particular. Okay. Sounds pretty easy, right? Nobody's going to screw that one up. Mm -hmm. Now it turns out, <laughs> so they were using this as a control task, but over and over, they started finding that there was a network of brain regions that was co-activating during this control task. And he basically sat on his data for two years. And um, when he was in, the story goes, when he was inducted into the National Academy of Sciences, you know, um, you get basically one free paper where, you know, it's your inaugural paper, people lightly review it, and they're like, you know, okay, whatever. Um, so he's like, oh, I'll put it in as my inaugural paper. And it was now <laughs> like one of the most cited papers in all of neuroscience because that, that study, that effect has been so reproducible. So, so what are people doing when they're not laying still and not doing anything in particular? So it, it took several years, up to a decade for people to really identify what was going on. 
Rachel's group didn't really know what was going on. They didn't think anything was supposed to be going on. That's the don't do anything in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what we tend to do when we're not doing anything in particular is we tend to think about ourselves. Think about and we tend to think, yeah. and yeah. we tend to think about ourselves in terms of the past or the future. We're rarely just focusing on what's happening right now, especially if we're laying in an fMRI scanner, hearing this bang, 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 bang. You know, it's kind of boring. So. So we're like, oh, you know, I can't believe I said that to that person or what am I going to have for dinner or when's this yeah, experiment right. going to be over or whatever. We're thinking about ourselves. And it, it, long story short, this network called the default mode network, it's what we default to and we're not doing anything in particular. That's why they named it thus. But it's a self-referential network. It, it basically, I think of it as the me network. It involves the conceptual sense of self and also probably the experiential sense of self. Now, the reason this was interesting to me was that in 2000, around 2010, my lab was studying expert meditators. We wanted to know what was happening in meditators' brains when they were meditating. When I was first learning to meditate, it felt like I was doing something. I felt like I was working pretty hard, actually. So I was like, Me well, too, I be- was. I was. It was actually becoming a source of stress. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, this is not working. Yeah. <laughs> this is hard. Get off the pillow and I'm miserable. Yeah. Yeah. A failure well, I again. Would- I would go on these week-long silent meditation retreats and I would sweat through t-shirts in the middle of winter because I was meditating so hard trying to focus on my breath. You know, my brain was having nothing of it. It was like, I'd rather think about this. I'd rather think about this. Yeah. Very common in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I did this study with expert meditators, you know, we compared them to novice meditators and we looked across a bunch of different types of meditation just to see what was common. And we, in, the first thing we did was not find what we were expecting. So I didn't find a single brain region when we looked across the entire brain, not a single brain region that was increased in activity in experts versus novice meditators. And at first, you know, we were thinking, man, oh, what's, you know, failed experiment. But then I said, well, let's look at this in the opposite direction. Is there something that's less active in expert meditators compared to novices? And we w- when we looked across the entire brain, there were only four regions that were different. And two of those four were these hubs of the default mode network, which, which blew me away. And it made me rethink what mindfulness and meditation is all about. And we can talk more about that in a minute. Yeah. But the, the idea is that, you know, it's kind of like with meditation, we're not getting caught up in thinking about the past and the future. And we're not getting caught up in thinking about ourselves. So the default mode network, you can think of it as not only thinking about ourselves in the past and the future, but it also gets activated when we're craving all sorts of studies, whether it's cocaine, cigarettes, chocolate, (laughs) you know, uh, gambling, all these, all these studies show that when people are craving these, these types of substances, they're activating their default mode network. It also gets activated when people worry. In fact, the more somebody worries, the more it gets activated. So we looked, we did some other experiments where we did these real-time neurofeedback studies where we could give people feedback basically while they were in the scanner, while they're meditating, while they're doing a task. And then we could line up their subjective experience with their brain activity. And what we found was that one hub of the default mode, the posterior cingulate, it gets activated when somebody's caught up in their experience. And this actually explained a lot to us in terms of what, what this default mode was doing. Because there are all these studies, you know, it was craving, it was thinking about the past and the future, it was guilt, it was, you know, all these things were activating the default mode network. And so the, the parsimonious explanation, our working hypothesis that is still, you know, been going on for the last couple of years and seems to be relatively accurate 
uh, who knows, it could change, is it's really when somebody gets caught up in their experience, when they get caught up in a craving, when they get caught up in worrying, and that feeling of contraction uh, may be that, uh, that link that links our subjective experience with the, with the posterior cingulate getting activated. And also what we find is when people let go, when they're, they're opening to their experience, that's when the default mode gets quiet. We can, quiet. We've shown this now even with novice meditators who've used our smoking app and we scan their brains before and a month later. And we find that the, the more they deactivate their default mode network, the more we can predict their likelihood to cut down on cigarette smoking, right? And so, right. so there are even causal connections that we're finding with that network and clinical outcomes. Well, importantly there, you say that with novice meditators even, you know, so mm -hmm. that you don't have to be sitting in a cave on a cushion for 20 years to be able to minimize or decrease your default mode network activity. Absolutely. I'm glad you bring that up. You know, with some of these neurofeedback studies were so fascinating to us. We found that some novices were totally flipping their brain activity from really active to really quiet, ready for this, in as few as nine minutes. Wow. Wow. Yeah, because feedback is the best way that we learn as humans. And so <laughs> if you can get direct access to your brain, yeah. that's yeah. pretty that's a pretty good feedback tool. And we even yeah. saw it with Anderson Cooper. Um, you know, when he came in. I know you had them all his, hooked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you know, we had him think of a time when he was anxious. The thing actually went off the charts, like it went above our level of detection. <laughs> and then we had to meditate and hit, you could watch it just drop immediately. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Kind of puts a nail in the coffin of I don't have time to meditate, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. The, and yeah. the way I think of this now is not about, you know, it's not as critical to find 45 minutes or an hour, or two hours or a week or a month or a year or 10 years to, you know, sit down on a cushion and meditate, but really as like short moments, many times. So yeah. That's how we form any new habits. Yeah. And so if we can, you know, in any one moment, notice when we're getting caught up in our experience and just, and, and practice letting go, that's, that's a moment that's going to help train our brain. Oh, this is good. Do it again. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really found the thing that kind of loosened me up on the meditation thing was Sam Harris's uh, waking up app. And so that one resonated with me strongly. And he just constantly emphasizes the critical nature of bringing the cushion, whatever extent it is, 10 minutes to many moments throughout the day, you know, yes. And developing that as a habit of, of being present has been a very powerful adjunct in my life. I wanted to touch on contraction. Mm. And if you could just elaborate a little bit about contraction versus being more spacious and open and kind of in our best self category. Yes. So my lab hasn't published this yet, but we did a study with several hundred people just to confirm something that's probably obvious to all of us when we look at it. Experientially, right? Yeah. 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 So uh, if I ask you, and uh, this is, so if it's okay for me to ask you a question, yeah, 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 yeah. what, so if you had to pick a category of experience, whether it uh, closed or open, right? I'm not going to define it more than that. Um, when you feel anxious, do you feel more closed or do you feel more open? Uh, closed for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and not receptive. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so if you think about that from an evolutionary standpoint, well, anxiety is not that helpful for us, evolutionarily speaking, but it, fear is, right? Mm -hmm. And with fear, if we're being cornered by some large animal, if we, you know, the more we can close ourselves down and protect our vital organs, the more likely we are to survive, you know, make right. yourself a small target. So 
that that closed quality or that contracted quality of experience tends to be common, you know, for anxiety, for frustration, uh, for, you know, if somebody's verbally attacking us, you know, things like that. And the anger, yes, yes. Uh, And with other mind states, so for example, with curiosity, with kindness, with connection, we tend to feel more open. I mean, you, you think of it, you know, when you're connecting with somebody, you're, you're reaching out. When you're curious about something, you're moving toward it so you can explore it. Mm-hmm. So those are opposite ends of the spectrum. And what we find is that those that close down quality of experience correlates with increased activity in the default mode network. That's mm-hmm. what I think of as getting caught up in our experience. That's how I'm, right. I'm kind of defining that. And the letting go is when we're more open, when we're just, you know, naturally not as caught up. And I say naturally because it's even when we, when we do the studies, you can actually do a reward hierarchy of the mind states, you know, which ones feel better. And in general, the open mind states feel much better than the closed mind states. So there's even, there's even a reward hierarchy where our brain prefers the open to the closed. So given, you know, just at rest, unless we're doing something habitually, like getting caught up in anxiety, we're going to, you know, we can, we're going to be more at ease because that's what our brain prefers to being more caught up in our experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've, I've come up with a, a, a sort of a paradigm. It's not mine. I mean, I've read and, and used this of kind of being above the line, mm-hmm. open mm-hmm. or below the line contracted. And when I'm above the line, I'm more of my best self. And when I'm below the line, I'm more of my worst self. And, and, you know, intuitively, I think every one of us understands for ourselves when we're above or below the line, you know? And so I've taken the tact of trying to do things and create habits that push me more above the line rather than below the line. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not a surgeon, but I can imagine, so I'm making this up and you can tell me to stop if it's not going well, if, if, (laughs) If a case is not going well and somebody starts going below the line and starts getting frustrated or, or anxious or whatever, that can just spiral, I imagine. Spirals, certain, absolutely. Yeah. And it infects, as you said, a brain sneeze on everybody else in the room. Yeah. yeah. So what's it like when you're above the line in a case and things are going well? You're in flow. I mean, yeah. you're just moving along and you are happy and in a, no better place to be in the world, almost literally. Is that infectious as well? Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, isn't calm it? And they're above the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's a really perfect example that I think every one of us could relate to as surgeons. Well, that's great. So now we've covered the mindfulness meditation and the and its impact on the default mode network and you know contraction versus openness. So now, <clears throat> what is the impact of the modern world on this whole arena? and causing us to be more contracted and the creation of addictions. You, you note very clearly that we're all addicted to something and we're not talking just caffeine or something. I mean, and, and I, I'd like you also to kind of elaborate if you would on, you know, we, we think of behaviors or habits or addictions as these external things, you know, they're, they're external behaviors, mm-hmm. picking up the phone, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we have mental behaviors and I love it that you use that term mental behaviors. And boy, if these mental behaviors aren't at the root of a lot of our problems. So if you could elaborate on the fact that we're all addicted to something and, and what that means for our overall health here. 
Yes. So I, we could spend a week talking about this. So I'll yeah. condense this to the Cliff Notes version. Right. So think of, you know, modern day people know how habits form. They know how addictions form and they know how easy it is to get somebody addicted to something. And so it's not just hey, who, who's they now. Let me just elaborate on they. They, they being, uh, well, think of the, the marketing term of pain points. Have you heard that term? No, I have not. So I don't know when this came about, but it was, the idea is if you're trying to sell a product to somebody. Oh yes, I have. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Continue on, please. Yeah. Yeah. So the basic idea is if somebody, if you have a aspirin and you want somebody to buy aspirin, you know, health, you know, heart effects aside, um, if, or if you have a pain reliever, let's say an NSAID, right? Somebody, if you have a pain reliever, and you're trying to get people to buy it. They're only going to buy it if they're in pain. Mm-hmm. So in marketing, they talk about pain points. If somebody has a pain point, the literally it could be pain and then they're going to be more likely to buy your pain reliever, but it could be anything where they're feeling a lack of something. Cause that's kind of painful as compared to feeling content yes. and what people, people as in uh, companies that want to sell things, realized was that you can actually create pain points by uh, inducing comparison for people. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> well, that mm-hmm. guy has a nicer car than you, you know, house, um, gadgets, phone, whatever. And the other thing is you, as long as you can put those on display, so you, you, now you can turbocharge that with social media where you can, you know, people are constantly saying, you know, putting pictures of themselves online saying, look what I did, or look what I got, or look what, you know, fantastic experience I had. And then if we go on there, we can say, my experience isn't that fantastic. Suddenly there's a pain point. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the ad can pop up on Instagram and say, oh, are you in pain? Buy this and you'll, you know, we'll relieve it and we can make it instant. You know, we'll, we'll sell, we'll send it to you tomorrow um, because instant gratification is something that our brains love. So the idea here is that we can, with the knowledge. uh, So if a company has a knowledge of how our brains work and how we, how we form habits, how we get addicted to things, they can play to those. You know, they can, they can get us frustrated. They can point out how we're lacking things. They can say, you could be happier. They can find all these different pain points and and then say crunchy, sweet, and salty. And you know, all these. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere we go, we're confronted with this. Absolutely. And for example, the food engineers, you know, the, it's interesting, the food industry and there's uh, RJR NAB, the company uh, is RJ Reynolds Nabisco, you know, because they took all their engineers that were engineering cigarettes and then said, Hey, we can apply this to food, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or food like objects, (laughs) you know, you know, know, the, what was it? The onion, that satirical uh, journal, they had a headline that says Dorito celebrates its 1 millionth ingredient. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just like the additives in in tobacco, you know, it's like 5,000 different chemicals in there to get, you know, to get people addicted because nicotine itself is actually a toxin and it's pretty nauseating, not just the toxin going in your body, but it's, it's the act of smoking is just not very pleasant. So they have right. to do all these things to numb your taste buds, to make it not feel as harsh because you're taking this superheated smoke into your lungs, all those things. So, so that's the basic idea, whether it's a substance or a behavior, you know, we can get addicted to doing certain things, including checking our phones, whether it's a food or a food-like object, you know, Doritos or what is it, Lay's, I bet you can't just eat just one, you know, because we've designed it that way. 
uh, you know, all of these things can get us addicted. So I, that's why I make the bold claim, uh, you know, we're all addicted to something. And the reason I can make that claim is that our brains are set up that way. Yet in modern, this is the first time historically that we can actually refine substances and make behaviors very, very addictogenic, if you want to yes. put it that way, right? Because you know, in, in ancient times, they they didn't refine coca leaves. They just chewed them. And that was fine. Nobody got addicted to coca leaves. But then, no, cocaine, that's a different story. <laughs> so then the, uh, so we're all addicted to something. Um, and you have focused your efforts on trying to overcome bad addictions or any addiction, really. I mean, you know, I, I think that they are, are all bad. The phone, all these things, they, to me, they have a very pernicious and slow downward spiral impact on our lives that we're kind of like in fish in water. We don't see it because we're so immersed in it until, you know, you become, you start having serious problems. So you've beautifully laid out in your book, Unwinding Anxiety, the, the three gear process to unwinding a bad habit. And I'd love it if you could go through that because it's, it's just so it's, you know, I've read a lot of books about uh, habits, you know, some of the most popular ones, James Clears and Duhigs and, and that. And what, what, what they lack is this, is this uh, ability to pin down the emotional side of it and the awareness side that you've so beautifully cap captured in your, in your work. And if you could kind of go through the three gears with say a, a typical addiction that we might all face as, as humans. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. And I would have to say, I'm, I've been very fortunate to have a career both as a clinician and also as a researcher. So, mm. you know, it's helpful to have a clinical background and a, and a neuroscience background. Um, and in fact, you know, I wrote this book with anxiety as the, as the, the main habit to explore. But as you point out, the book really is about uh, unwinding any type of habit. But I use anxiety because I was blown away. I don't know if I slept through that class in medical school or just didn't learn it. But I never knew that anxiety could be driven like any other habit. Mm -hmm. So let's use that. Well, I'll just give an example of that. And then we'll go through the gears. And maybe we can use uh, technology as a, as a common habit right. to, to right. explore. So anxiety, if you think of negative reinforcement, right? Trigger behavior results. Anxiety itself, the feeling of anxiety can trigger a mental behavior. And you mentioned mental, this earlier. It's not just behavior. physical behaviors like, you know, snorting cocaine, drinking alcohol, whatever, checking our social media, mental behaviors as well. Worry is, is a really strong mental behavior that we can get stuck in. And the way that we get stuck in it is that it feels like it gives us this illusion of control. You know, at mm -hmm. least I've, I, maybe I can't do anything about this, but at least I can worry about it because if, if we feel better that we're doing something rather than doing nothing. Yeah. And that's enough of a reward to feed back to our brains to say, hey, next time you're anxious, just start worrying again. And then we get caught in this vicious cycle where anxiety uh, triggers worry and then worry feeds back and triggers more anxiety. So I hadn't known that. Uh, and, and I, you know, all I had at my disposal at the time was prescribing medications. Right. <laughs> right? And in fact, the, the gold standard medications don't work particularly well for anxiety. The ones that work well are the ones that are controlled substances and, and are not recommended as first-line treatment uh, for anxiety, like the benzos and whatnot. So that's a whole different story. Um, if, if anybody's interested, they should read the book uh, Empire of Pain because it actually gives the history of the Sackler family, not only with the opioids, but the, the, 
the guy that started this whole thing, Arthur Sackler, got his he cut his teeth on Valium and chlordiazepoxide. Oh, um, you know, know. Yeah. yeah. So um Librium. So the, you know, he's like, oh, you know, we can market addictive substances as, you know, what did the Rolling Stones call it? Mother's little helper. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. how that's how well he did <laughs> as a as an advertising agency. So you can think of working with any type of habit, whether it's, you know, it's physical, like checking our phones or mental, like worrying. I think of it as a three-step process. And this came from me doing, observing my patients in my clinic and also doing our research studies. You know, we, so we did a bunch of studies. We, we, had, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking. We oh, got, I just want you to say that again. I want you to say that again. <laughs> and the, the number to treat, all right? That's so incredible. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So in the, let's use anxiety as an example. So the number needed to treat for anxiety medications is 5.2, right? So five patients, one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms in our study with generalized anxiety disorder. This is with our unwinding anxiety app. Our number needed to treat was ready for this 1.6. Yeah. Yeah. If an app could do a mic drop. (laughs) Yeah, I know it. It's really true. I mean, when I saw that data, I was just blown away, blown away. Yeah, we were blown away too. So, you know, we actually started with a study of anxious physicians. So it was a single arm trial. We couldn't calculate the number needed to treat there, but it was 57% reduction. And when we saw that, we said, okay, let's, let's replicate this in an RCT and NIH, you know, we got an NIH grant to do it. That's where we got the 67% reduction and the number needed to treat of 1.6. So we even have reproducible data, which I think is really important in science. So that was in physicians initially. And let's just highlight that physicians are anxious. (laughs) <laughs> yes. You know, in that study, it, it took a single email from the CEO of our hospital system to recruit all the subjects we needed for that study. One oh my email. God. Yeah. That, that's so telling. My yes. God. Yes. I mean, it was great for our research group, but I was thinking, oh my God, <laughs> talk about an epidemic. <laughs> yeah. Stunning. Really stunning. Really stunning. Yeah. Yeah. And in that study, we also found that anxiety and burnout were highly correlated, which is a duh, you know, from anybody's direct experience. And we even found that certain aspects of burnout, uh, like callousness, we could, we could get a 50% reduction in certain aspects of burnout just by teaching people how their minds work and how to work with their mind using the unwinding anxiety app. So that was really encouraging to us was that we could tackle both anxiety and certain aspects of burnout with the same, with the same program, because you know, if you train somebody to learn how their mind works, then they can apply it to all sorts of things. And, yeah. and that knowledge generalizes into wisdom, which is pretty, that's when I get really excited. No kidding. Know? No kidding. Me too. So, so I, I, I just, yeah. I want to say that I, I want to highlight the fact that you actually had objective data showing a reduction in some of the aspects of burnout through this process, you know? Yes. Um, so there, there are things that we as physicians can do that have a meaningful impact on our experience. Yes. Yeah, and that includes not ignoring our own experience. You know, yes. in medical school, we learned to armor up, you know, armor to up. Yeah. Yeah, be, be the martyrs. You know, it's like, oh, if I take care of myself, I, I'm wasting that time. I could be saving lives. Well, if we're exhausted and burnt out, we're actually doing more harm than good, as the data are clearly show, you know, a lot of more, a lot more medical errors with burnout. Yeah. All right. So let's take one simple habit and roll through your three step or three gears of breaking a bad habit. 
Sure. So let's use um, let's use as Cornell West puts it, our weapons of mass distraction. I love our, that. Our I love phones. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so our phones are set up to be you know basically addict us. Uh, so the one thing to keep in mind is the most reinforcing type of behavior is called intermittent reinforcement. It's basically random rewards when we don't know when we're going to get something. Our phones are set up that way, especially if we have all of our, our alerts set turned on. You know, like for email and for text messaging and for whatever. Our phones used to only do one thing, which was ring, <laughs> you know? Right, right. And then you could choose to answer it or not. But now, you know, somebody could text, somebody could tweet, you know, all these things can be turned on and we don't know when we're going to get a text or a tweet. So, you know, our, our phone does a little chirp or a beep and then it starts burning a hole in our pocket to say, hey, you know, go figure out, go, go get that information. There's uncertainty here. Go make it, you know, make it certain. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that hard to get get certainty when you look at your tweet, you know, like, okay, that's what it was, or it was a text. So I just want to highlight that because our phones are really, you know, really strong, really good at doing that, you know, and they're convenient and they're always in front of us and we can use them to distract ourselves. So let's the, use the other second point there of the addictive nature is intermittent and available, right? Yes. Yes. Immediate availability. So those, yeah. these are the two ingredients of the modern world, which are getting us addicted to all these things. Yes. Yep. I'm glad you highlight that. That's, that's a really critical piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. So think of, so the first gear, I think of this cause I like to ride my bicycle. So it's like, you know, you, or, but somebody can think of it as a car as well. You know, you got to start moving in first gear. So first gear is about mapping out our habit loops. If we're not aware of a habit loop, we can't, we can't work with it. Our mind's a black box. I'll give a concrete example. So if uh, I had a resident that I was, um, that was uh, working with me uh, on my addiction service and she described how she had two little kids and she described how she uh, woke up uh, to not literally from asleep, but like it was dinner time and her two kids were sitting at the dinner table. And she just realized that she was standing away from the dinner table, checking her news feed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And she woke up to that and she's like, what am I doing? You know, yeah. I could be having dinner with my kids and I'm checking my newsfeed. I don't need to be doing this. So the fish came out of the water. Yeah. yeah. She jumped yeah. out of the water and realized that she was in the water. Yeah. So the first thing that we need to do is realize and map out these habit loops, which is as simple as noticing, you know, mapping out what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result. And I usually have people start with the behavior because they can map backwards to what triggered it. And they also, if they don't know what triggered it, it's not that important. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But so if they can't find the trigger, not a big deal. They know what the behavior is because they're doing it or they just did it. And then they can map out what's the result of this. Like what, um, what, what, what happened, you know, after I did this. So that's first gear, just mapping it out. Pretty straightforward. Anybody can do this. I actually do this with most of my patients now on intake where, you know, panic disorder. We map out, you know, I teach them 30 seconds. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? We map it out together. I usually send them home to start mapping out their habit loops. They come back, you know, let's say they come back two weeks later and then we go through those. And then the next step, second gear is really, really critical is around uh, the cause and effect relationship of the behavior. So reward-based learning. So this reinforcement learning, reward-based learning that we've been talking about, it the critical piece here is how rewarding a behavior is. It's not even the behavior itself. 
So if it were the behavior itself, we could just say, stop doing that. You know, I, I'd have one visit with any patient and be like, you want to quit smoking? I just tell them to stop smoking. You know? right. And then I'd send them home and they'd stop, stop overeating, stop worrying all that. It's not about the behavior. It's about how rewarding the behavior is or how reinforcing the behavior is. So the critical piece here is to explore what, what they're getting from it. And I have people ask that question. What am I getting from this? If I'm worrying, is it keeping my family member safe? Is it solving the problem or is it just making me more anxious, right? Really exploring their own direct experience. What am I getting from this? We even built this as a, what we call the craving tool into our Eat Right Now app. And we did a study to, to measure the reward value change in people's experience. Because the, if, you're, if a behavior is rewarding, you're never going to, you're not going to stop doing it because your brain's like, oh, this is good. I'm going to keep doing it. You know, if it's not rewarding, then our brains naturally let go. Cause they're like, oh, why would I do that? That's not very rewarding. So we have people pay attention, for example, as they overeat and really, you know, pay attention to all the aspects, you know, what are the results of that? And, and bring that awareness to their mind. Are you ready for this? It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody overeating for that reward value to drop below zero, where they start to shift that behavior. We can do this with, with our weapons. Of mass. But then it's yeah. a habit. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. yeah. So the reward is in the beginning, but then it filters down and it's no longer rewarding, but now it's built into the, the Savannah brain as a habit. Absolutely. A right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That goes back to the set and forget. We set the reward value. Right. We forget right. about the details. And then, you know, we wake up 40 years later or we wake up, you know, soon, well, hopefully as soon as possible to our phones and realize, oh, I'm checking my phone. I'm checking my newsfeed while my kids are eating dinner. So the, with a, with our phones, we can ask ourselves, you know, if I'm spending time scrolling on social media and I do this with my college students at, at Brown, I teach a course on, you know, basically on the craving mind and I have them explore a habit loop as they go through the semester. And a lot of them pick social media because it's a, it's a big issue for all mm-hmm. of us. Mm-hmm. And so I have them explore, you know, what am I getting from this when I'm spending all this time scrolling on social media as compared to spending time with my friends? And this is what actually shifts it into the third gear, right? So once we start to become disenchanted with the behavior, simply by bringing awareness to it, it's not about telling ourselves that we shouldn't do it. It's about seeing that we're not, it's not actually that rewarding. Then we can shift into the third gear. When we're disenchanted, our brain says, okay, I'm not excited about this as much. Give me something better. I call it the BBO. Yeah. The, the bigger, better offer, right? No, I, would, I just want to hold a second and, and just highlight two words, awareness and mm-hmm. disenchantment. So this is crucial because once that habit is developed, and you tell me if, I'm, if I don't have this quite right, once that habit is developed, you're on autopilot and you're not yes. aware of what you're doing even. And so your second gear through mindfulness brings awareness to the process unfolds that you're really actually not getting anything out of this. In fact, it's a detrimental thing. And then you've got the disenchantment. Like you look at it and you say, I don't like this, right? Isn't that basically it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People who come into my clinic and want to quit smoking, you know, I tell them to smoke, but pay attention. And they come back and they say, I can't, how did I not notice this 30 years ago? You tell them to go smoke and start paying attention. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So there, that's kind of paradoxical because people are so focused on, you know, just trying to force themselves to change the behavior. And that's not how our brains work. right? Right. 
So when we become, and I'm glad you highlight those two things. So when we use awareness to become disenchanted, not by telling ourselves, but just directly paying attention to our experience, our brain's going to look for that bigger, better offer. And I like to help people find bigger, better offers that are not going to get them caught in just another habit loop, right? So I've had people- Both substitutions, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I've, oh, a lot of- for cigarettes, et cetera. Right. Candy for yeah. cigarettes, not so helpful. Even substituting exercise for some substance use. I've had a lot of patients who do that. Exercise is really helpful. Over-exercising, not so helpful. And, and exercising in order to satisfy a craving or avoid situations is a problem because when somebody gets injured, then their brain says, well, I'm going back to this other thing because I don't know how to work thing. with the cravings. Yeah. 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 So the, the bigger, better offer categories, I think of two flavors that work really well here that are intrinsic as in, you know, they don't become habituated. We don't need more and more of them. So and the bigger, better offer just to highlight is a new reward. Yes. 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 Something a new reward. Yeah. Yes. And a new reward that is more rewarding, you know, right, than right. the old one. And it, right. that becomes easier and easier, the less enchanted we are with the, with the old behavior. Right. So the new ones, I think of these flavors as curiosity and kindness, but basically this is anything that helps us open, you know, cause these both feel open as compared to closed. And we talked earlier about how that is naturally more rewarding, but for example, when, when we're anxious, we could worry or we could get curious, huh? What does this anxiety feel like? Not try to go, huh? Why am I anxious? Cause we get stuck in those loops, you know, why, why, why? And then we go to psychotherapy for our whole life and spend a gazillion dollars and don't get it. I won't say don't get anywhere, but <laughs> I'll just say for a lot of my patients, it's not helpful to try to yeah, figure out what in their childhood it was yeah. that caused them to be anxious. Um, right. But it is helpful because that's not, that's not in the equation for behavior change, right? If you look at the prediction, you know, if you look at the brain models, it's all about look, you know, current reward value plus an error term, right? It's all about what's happening right now. And so yeah. if you can pay attention, see, it's not rewarding, that error helps change the equation. So if we look at our experience and we are anxious and we get worried and, or as compared to get curious about what those feelings of anxiety feel like curiosity feels better than, than worry, you know, uh, being connected with our friends feels better than being sucked into our, you know, our phones all the time. So if we can just look at, you know, those aspects, oh, can I be curious about my experience? Can I bring kindness to myself instead of judging myself? You know, you somebody has a case and it's not going well and they start, you know, judging themselves and yelling at themselves, not so helpful. As right. compared to, oh, you know, oh, I'm noticing that I'm a little frustrated, getting curious about that. And then opening back up to what's happening in the present moment so they can proceed as compared to kind of spiral out of control. So, th so that's basically the three gears, you know, first gear, map out a habit loop. Second gear, ask, what am I getting from this? So we can look at that reward value, bring awareness in, get disenchanted with the old behavior, and then shift into third gear and find that bigger, better offer you know, these flavors of kindness and curiosity, but basically anything that helps us open, you know, gratitude, practice, you know, all sorts of things right. can, can right. really help us tap into that bigger, better offer. And, and here's where for me, the, the mindfulness and meditation has played such a crucial role because they foster, I, I think it's safe to say I'm, that I can say this, you know, the curious curiousness, they foster kindness towards ourselves. If we practice loving kindness meditation, I'll never forget when I went to the 
my self-compassion retreat and they asked me to put my hand on my heart. I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> the resistance was so high, you know, yeah. but it's a magical thing once you start actually doing that. And so there's where the real value of meditation comes in in this whole process, I, I, I see. And I, I'm sure you'd agree. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Now you're, we're, get, we're running out of time here. And I wanted to touch on one thing that's probably near and dear to the hearts of cardiothoracic surgeons. And that is the notion of willpower. And, 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 and that we have this sense that because our conscious experience is really, uh, you know, drives our sense of a view of the world, we tend to overestimate and overbelieve in willpower as the force that, you know, takes care of everything, the just do it thing. And uh, you, you call willpower a myth in the book. Can you elaborate a little bit on this and, and how the prefrontal cortex is, is the willpower machine but it's actually the weakest machine in the, in the, in the, in the armamentarium of our, of our brains. Did yeah. I get all that right? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we'll get into, into the philosophical arguments about whether willpower is, you know, e even a real thing or not, right. but I, I will say, so let's say at best, it is more myth than muscle in the sense yeah. that uh, there've been studies that suggest that it gets depleted as we get tired, you know, this hungry, this halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's when our prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex goes offline. Mm -hmm. So at best it gets depleted at worst. It's, it's more a myth than, uh, than anything else. So, you know, willpower does not factor into these equations of behavior change. It's really, you know, if you, we touched on this earlier, but basically you know, if you want to change the reward value of something, it's based on the previous, how rewarding it was previously, plus this error term. And it can become more rewarding if we pay attention. We're like, oh, that's really great. You know, we eat the chocolate cake and it's really delicious. Like, oh, I want more of that. Or if it becomes less rewarding, this is the disenchantment. If we pay attention, it's not that great. We eat the cake and we're like, meh, I've had better, right? And so we don't eat that cake anymore. Notice how willpower is not in that equation at not all. Not in there anywhere. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. So if you look at the neuroscience, neuroscientists suggest that willpower is not, you know, that's where they suggest it's more myth and muscle. And also, if you look at behavior change, if you just look at the experiments and you look at the studies, you know, we, we do mindfulness training in our apps and we have, we see significant change. We saw a 40% reduction in craving related eating. This was a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF, 40% reduction in craving related eating not about willpower at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the, the trap with willpower is the self-judgment that comes with it when oh, yeah. you fail at being powerful with your will. Yes. It's kind of like an echo habit loop, you know, so we fail and then that triggers a self-judgmental habit loop on yeah. top of it. Yeah. And then, you know, both of them just play off of each other. In a state of misery. <laughs> yes. Literally. That is the result. <laughs> yeah. Well, Judd, this has just been an utter delight and so educational, and uh, it's just been wonderful. Can you tell people where they want to, where they can find more about this stuff with you and your work and, and the websites and the apps and all that? Sure. The simplest place to look is my website, which is just drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com. So it's got in links to the different apps, the Craving to Quit, the Unwinding Anxiety, the E Right Now app. Um, People can just download download those from the app store as well, uh, but that's probably the best place. I'm also on Twitter, 
at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R, and Instagram at dr.jud. Great. Well, <clears throat> I can't thank you enough. It's, it's been a real delight. So appreciated. Oh, it's, it was my pleasure. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.